0: Our sermon this morning is from 1 Kings chapters 5 through 8, so we're going to try to sprint through about uh, yeah, four uh, chapters of, of scripture here. We're going to be talking about the temple and the, and the palace. In the last few weeks, we have seen uh, the transition of power from David to King Solomon. We saw David impart his final words of wisdom and instruction to Solomon. Solomon established his kingdom and his reign. We saw Kind of a you know a, a perspective, a look into Solomon's wealth and his his wisdom and his you know fame and power and success and prosperity. And so, one of the first things that Solomon does in his reign, uh, we're going to look at today, is build the temple and build the palace. These two big, huge physical structures in the city of Jerusalem that are kind of his his anchors, as it were, for who he is, and what his, what his kingdom, what his rule, and his reign are going to be about. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to work through um, 1 Kings 5-8. If you're using a pew Bible, you can find it on page 264. So turn there. We're not going to have the, the text on the screen again just because it's too much, but we'll, we'll track through it in the, in the Bible together. So grab a pew Bible or pull your Bible out, and we will work through it together. Let's pray so I open our time. Lord Jesus, we, um, we ask your blessing on these next few minutes, Lord. We pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts. We pray that you would help us to see uh, the glory and the beauty of Christ. Lord, we pray, like, like Jason prayed this morning, Lord, we pray that we would not take for granted the privilege that it is to gather as believers in Jesus publicly to open the Word of God together. We pray that we wouldn't take for granted the privilege that it is to own a Bible, to have a Bible translated into our original language and to own our own personal copy of it and to be able to keep it at our home and read it whenever we want to. These are these are privileges that that Christians all over the world today and certainly all over the world throughout uh, the history of the church um, would, would, you know, love to, to have. And so we possess an embarrassment of spiritual riches and we pray that um, as we enjoy them, as we gather and listen to your word, we pray that you would impress upon us the privilege that it is, help us to take it seriously and help us to listen and, and obey your word. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right, we'll start in chapter 5, verse 1. Now Hiram, king of Tyre, sent his servants to Solomon when he heard that they anointed him king in place of his father, because Hiram had always loved David. Verse 2, and Solomon sent word to Hiram, saying, you know that David, my father, could not build a house for the name of the Lord his God because of the warfare with which his enemies surrounded him until the Lord put them under the soles of his feet. This is a callback to 2 Samuel chapter 7, when David ex- uh, expresses to God. In 2 Samuel chapter uh, yeah, 2 Samuel chapter 7, it says, uh, God says, uh, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the, house, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. God, David communicates to God, I want to build a permanent temple for the, for the ark of God to dwell. And God responds, would you build a house for me to dwell in? David, I have not lived in a house since the day that I brought um, the people up from Israel, the people from Israel out of Egypt. I've been moving about as, with a tent for my dwelling. And in all the places where I've moved with all the people of Israel, did I ever speak a word? Did I ever command anyone to say, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? God continues, I took you from the pasture, from following sheep, that you would be prince over my people. I have been with you wherever you've went. I've cut off your enemies. I've given you rest. Moreover, the Lord declares, I will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled, you will lie down with your fathers. I will raise up your offspring after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom and he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he will be to me a son. That's the Davidic covenant. That's God's promise, His covenant with David. David says, "I want to build a temple." God says, "Don't worry about building me a temple. Uh, your son will build me a temple. So no need to, no need to worry about that. But I will establish your house. I will establish your throne. I will make sure that your lineage is, is the, the line through which the kings of Israel will will come." So Second Samuel seven is God essentially telling David, "You don't build a you don't build a temple. Your son will." In First Chronicles twenty two, which is kind of a parallel uh, account. We see some more insight into why God told David not to build the temple and told him that his son would. In 1 Chronicles 22, David is giving uh, fatherly wisdom and instruction to his son Solomon. And he says, My son, I had it in my heart to build a house to the name of the Lord my God. But the word of the Lord came to me, saying, You have shed much blood, and you have waged great wars. And so you shall not build a house to my name, because you have shed so much blood before me on the earth. Behold, David, a son shall be born to you, and he will be a man of rest. David was a man of war. David's son Solomon is a man of rest. And I will give him rest and all, against all of his surrounding enemies. And his name shall be Solomon. I will give him peace and quiet in those days. And he shall build a house for my name. He shall be my son. I will be his father. And I will establish his royal throne in Israel forever. So, like, uh, like in the Godfather where he says, you're not a wartime conciliary. Right? Like God says, you're, David, you're a wartime king. I don't want that kind of king to build my temple. Your son will be a peacetime King, I want him to build uh, my, my temple. So that's kind of the backdrop that kind of informs uh, what Solomon is now experiencing and how he's about to proceed in First Kings five. So back to First Kings five, chapter four. Back to First Kings chapter five, verse four. Now the Lord has given me rest on every tide. There's neither adversary nor misfortune. I intend to build a house for the name of God, as as God said to my father, your son will set your throne in place, and you shall build a and shall build a house for my name. Verse 6. Now therefore command that cedars of Lebanon be cut for me and my servants will join your servants and I will pay you uh, for your servants such as the wages that you set. So Solomon says to King Hiram from Tyre, he says, okay, I want to build a temple. I want you to send people and supplies and resources to help me build my temple. We'll pay you. You tell us what it will cost. Give us the price and we will we will pay it. Verse 8 Hiram says to Solomon, I have heard the message that you have sent me. I am ready to do what you desire. Verse 10, uh, Hiram supplied Solomon with all the temper and all the cedar and all the cypress that he desired. Verse 11, Solomon uh, compensates Hiram and his people generously. Verse 12, Then the Lord gave Solomon wisdom as he had promised. And there was peace between Hiram and Solomon, and the two of them made a treaty. So, the stage is set for the building of the temple. We've got supplies. We've got, we've got people there to work and build. Verse 13, King Solomon drafted forced labor out of Israel. He drafted 30,000 men, and he sent them to Lebanon, 10,000 a month in, two, or in shifts. So it would be one month in Lebanon and then two months at home. Adoniram was in charge of the draft. So Solomon... Uh, grabs 30,000 men from Israel and uses them to start gathering the materials for the temple. Chapter 9, it makes it clear that the the people from Israel that Solomon drafted into uh, working were not doing manual labor, slave labor. They were uh, soldiers, officials, commanders, captains. So prisoners of war from other surrounding nations were the slave labor that was doing the actual work. The people that were drafted from the nation of Israel were soldiers and kind of people in charge. And then in, verse, or in chapter 6, verse 1, start the project, start the, start the, the building. In the, four, or in the 480th year after the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel which is the second month, he began to build the house of the Lord. The house that King Solomon built for the Lord was 60 cubits long by 20 cubits wide by 30 cubits high. A cubit is about 18 inches. It was measured by like the tip of your uh, elbow to the tip of your finger. So about a foot and a half, something like that. Um, But yeah, so, so, so they're building this temple 90 feet by 30 feet by 45 feet. Those are the dimensions of the of the temple. Verses 3 through 10, it's got a big uh, porch area with uh, chambers along the sides, three stories of chambers kind of built around the sides of the temple structure. Verse 11, Now the word of the Lord came to Solomon concerning this house that you are building. And if you will walk in my statutes and obey my rules and, and keep all my commandments and walk in them, then I, God, will establish my word with you, Solomon, which I spoke to David, your father. And I will dwell among the children of Israel, and I will not forsake my people Israel. So, in the process of this building, construction um, construction project, God makes a promise to Solomon, just like he made to his father David. If you are faithful to me, if you listen to my word, if you obey my commandments, I will bless you and I will dwell with you. Verse 14, so Solomon built the house, and he it, In the verses that follow him, we see all kinds of fancy wood that's in and around the building. Verse 18, uh, the cedar within the house was carved in the form of gourds and open flowers. So we're going to see this kind of recurring theme over the next couple of chapters of uh, flowers and vegetation and trees uh, and angels, all of which are kind of uh, reinforcing this idea that the temple of God is kind of hearkening back to or it's symbolic of the Garden of Eden with trees and flowers and, and angels and these, these kinds of things. Uh, the, original, right, the, the, the Garden of Eden was God's original temple where he dwelled with his people, and now the, the temple that Solomon builds is kind of reminiscent of and pointing back to and kind of a, a remaking of the Garden of, of Eden verse 19 in the back of the sanctuary there's the most holy place so the, the literally the the back portion of the building was a was a perfect cube 20 by 20 by 20 20 cubits by 20 cubits by 20 cubits it was all overlaid with gold right when you when you walk into solomon's temple the entire thing was essentially overlaid with pure gold all of the surfaces were were wood that had gold kind of laid over them it was meant to kind of be this blindingly brilliant, glorious, beautiful, luxurious, expensive, glorious uh, thing. And the inner sanctuary, so inside, verse 23, inside the inner sanctuary. So the inner sanctuary is the most holy place. It's the, it's the holy of holies. It's the back of the, of the temple. It's that perfect cube, and that's where God dwells. The, the, the regular sanctuary that leads up, oh, there we go. Um, the regular sanctuary that leads up to it is, uh, you know, kind of, you have all of these instruments, all of these furnishings in it. The most holy place in the back is the 20 by 20 by 20 cube, and that's where God's glory, God's presence dwells. And it says, in it, verse 23, uh, there are two cherubim of olive wood, each 10 cubits high. That's those two kind of animal, angelic-looking things back there. He put cherubim in the innermost part of the house, and the wings of the cherubim spread out so that a wing of one touched one wall, And a wing of the other touched the other wall, and the two touched it together in the middle of the house, and he overlaid the cherubim with pure gold. So these two kind of cherubim back here, one wing, like, each one is ten cubits high, ten cubits wide. Their wings touch together, their wings touch the wall, and the space right in between the two is where the Ark of the Covenant is going to live. So again, more Edenic imagery here, more, like... Uh, If you remember in Genesis 3, at the end of Genesis 3, after the fall, after humanity sins and they are cursed by God and they're kind of kicked out of the Garden of Eden, uh, the last verse in Genesis chapter 3 says that God placed a cherubim at the gate, at the entrance of the Garden of Eden with a flaming sword. And he was kind of guarding the Garden of Eden. He was guarding the presence of God, kind of saying sinful man is not allowed into the presence of a holy god and he's kind of preventing that from taking place and this is kind of reminiscent of that angels cherubim guarding the presence of god guarding the glory and the holiness of god from sinful man who's allowed to reside and kind of exist outside of that most holy place chapter 6 verse uh 30 or yeah verse 29 and 30 Around all the walls were engraved figures of cherubim and palm trees and flowers. In the inner and outer rooms, the floor was overlaid with pure gold in the inner and outer rooms. Again, trees, flowers, angels, kind of reminiscent of the Garden of Eden. Verse 31, they make an entrance and and doors, I think down to maybe verse 36. Verse 37 and following, it says, uh, In the fourth year... Uh, the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid in the month of Ziv and in the 11th year in the month of Bul which is the 8th month the house was finished in all its parts according to the specifications he spent 7 years building it so 7 years spent to build the temple um, and, and then in ver- chapter 7 verse 1 we, we jump into the next building project so Solomon was building his own house for 13 years and he finished his entire house it took Solomon almost twice as long to build his palace than he took to build God's temple. Uh, Sol- Solomon's temple. Seven years, Solomon's palace. 13 years. We're already starting to kind of see uh, we're starting to see Solomon's heart kind of be pulled astray a little bit. We're starting to see his priorities become less than less than noble. And the, the dimensions, verse 2. He built the house of the force of the It was 100 cubits, and its breadth was 50 cubits, and its height was 30 cubits. So the temple was 60 by 20 by 30. The palace was 100 by 50 by 30. So his palace dwarfs the temple. His palace, he spends twice as much time and effort and resources to build than he spends the, on, on the, the temple. And so Again, we can kind of see through, all throughout Solomon's whole entire life, from the moment that he becomes king until the moment that he dies in chapter 11, um, just kind of this mix of good and bad, right? Good intentions, wisdom, noble ambitions, noble desires, but also love of money, love of power, being impressed with himself, uh, you know, love of, desire for, craving security and comfort and luxury and these kinds of kinds of things. And so Solomon again there's a lot about Solomon that's commendable. There's a lot about Solomon that's admirable. There's a lot about Solomon that is exemplary for us that we should look at and try to emulate, but Solomon is also a cautionary tale for us. The story of Solomon is a stark reminder that no matter how smart you are, how wise you are, no matter how you know, what, what pedigree you have, no matter how godly your father was, no matter how uh, much you might expect that your life is going to kind of pan out this one particular way, the love of the world, the love of money, the love of power, the love of pleasure can, can be uh, alluring and it can pull you away from faithfulness to, to God. So we should read the story of Solomon and use it as a cautionary Tale. verses 3 through 7, all kinds of halls and fancy courtrooms in Solomon's palace, verse 8, uh, his own house uh, where he was to dwell in the court in the back of the hall was, was uh, of like workmanship, and Solomon also made a house like this for Pharaoh's daughter whom he had taken in marriage. This is what we saw last week, Solomon's kind of uh, political alliance, marriage to the daughter of the head of state in Egypt. And so now he's built a house for her, similar to the house that he uh, is, is living in. Verses uh, 13 to 51 are all kinds of uh, descriptions of the furnishings in the, the temple of God. So all of these, um, you know, it starts with these two huge pillars, verses 15 to 22. Um, they, even, they even give them names. I think the name of one is, uh, verse 21, the name of one is Jachin or Jachin, and then the name of the other is Boaz. And so these two, we can maybe go back to that, um, that picture of the, the temple there, Jesse. So these two huge pi- pillars there, one on either side, um, are, are just talked about in verses 15 to 22. 23 to 26 is a huge metal basin. That's this guy in the bottom of the picture here. A massive 8 feet tall, 15 feet wide, 12,000 gallons of water. This is where the priests would go for their like, ceremonial ritual washing before they would go into the temple to do uh, their work. Verses 27 to 39 describes 10 uh, bronze wheeled stands. Those are these guys kind of floating along the side here. There's five more on the other side, but each of them have wheels and a stand. There's basins, and these were used to wash the, uh, the, the meat that was just offered as sacrifices to kind of wash it off before they would uh, burn them as burnt offerings, which would happen on this altar up here. Let's see, verses, verse 40, there's pots and shovels. Uh, verse 47. Oh So verse 47, Solomon left all the vessels unweighed because there were so many of them. The weight of the bronze was not ascertained. So between the, all of these kind of things here and all the furnishings in and around the temple, so much bronze, they didn't even bother weighing it because it was just too much to, to do. Verses 48 to 50 is all of the utensils and things that were going to be used inside the the temple, the vessels, the altar, the table, the lampstands, flowers, lamps, tongs, cups, dishes, etc. By the time you get to verse 51, the entire building is outfitted and it's ready to go. It says, thus all the work that Solomon did on the house of the Lord was finished. And Solomon brought in the things that David, his father, had dedicated—the silver and the gold and the vessels—and he stored them in the treasuries of the house of the Lord. So, by the time we get to the first verse of chapter eight, building is done. Build all the stuff is ready. We're ready to have a kind of a, a dedication, a ceremony, kind of a, a prayer to kind of uh, invoke and kind of get ready the ministry for this new uh, temple. In chapter 8, verse 5, King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who had assembled before him with the ark, they, they were there, they were sacrificing so many sheep and so many oxen that they could not be counted or numbered. The priests brought the ark of the covenant of the Lord to its place in the inner sanctuary of the house in the most holy place. Underneath the wings of the cherubim, for the cherubim spread out their wings over the place of the Ark. So the, the priests bring the Ark in, put it between those two uh, cherubim in the most holy place in the back of the temple. Verse 9, there was nothing in the Ark except two tablets of stone that Moses put there at Horeb and, the, and when the Lord had made a covenant with the people of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. So the only thing, by this point, the only thing that's in the Ark of the Covenant is the, the, the tablets, the tablets that Moses had put there. Among other times during the history of Israel, other stuff kind of resided in the Ark of the Covenant or right along with or alongside the Ark of the Covenant. Hebrews chapter 9 says that the Ark contained not only the tablets of the Covenant, which are there now, but also a golden urn that's holding manna that God had kind of rained down from heaven when the Israel was wandering through the wilderness, and Aaron's staff that had miraculously budded. And so those two, kind of the, the manna and the staff that had budded, were kind of there to remind the people of God of God's provision for them in the wilderness and God's protection of them, caring for them, and the, the leaders that God had installed over them. So those had existed in or near the ark at some point along the way, but by now they're not there. They'd either been removed or, for whatever reason, by the time Solomon is there and builds the temple, the only thing that's in the ark are the tablets of the Lord, verse ten. When the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord, so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. So, so the the, the glory of God, the presence of God, as represented when they're wandering through the wilderness, it's represented by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And so that pillar, that that smoke, that the the physical manifestation of the presence and the glory of God fills the most holy place, and then kind of, it bleeds out and fills the entire uh, structure, so much so that they have, to, they have to leave. They couldn't stand in there and minister because the, the glory of the Lord was so thick and, and kind of full, filling up the the temple. Verse 12, Then Solomon said, The Lord has said that he would dwell in thick darkness. I have indeed built you an exalted house, a place for you to dwell in forever. Verse 14, the king turned around and blessed all the assembly of Israel while all the assembly of Israel stood. And he said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who with his hands has fulfilled what he promised with his mouth to David, my father, saying, Since the day that I brought my people out of Egypt, I chose no city out of all the tribes of Israel in which to build a house that my name might be there. But I chose David to be over my people. Now it was in the heart of David, my father, to build a house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. But the Lord said to David, my father, whereas it was in your heart to build a house for my name, you did well that it was in your heart. Nevertheless, you shall not build a house, but your son who shall be born to you shall build a house for my name. Verse 20, now the Lord... Has fulfilled the promise that he made. For I have risen in the place of David my father, sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised, and I have built the house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. And I've provided a place for the Ark, which is in the covenant of the Lord that He made with our fathers when He brought them out of the land of Egypt. So Solomon turns to the people of God and he kind of rehearses the the history of their relationship with God up until this point. He rehearses the history that's brought them up until this moment. God brought us here. God defeated our enemies. God installed David as the king over his people. God instructed me to build him his temple. Solomon kind of starts by remembering the faithfulness and the the righteousness and the sovereignty and the justice of, of God what we're going to see in the rest of chapter 8 is he prays for the things that he wants and needs god i pray that you would do xy and z as as prayers should do but he starts his prayer not by asking god for the things that he wants he starts his prayer by remembering declaring acknowledging affirming reasserting the goodness and the and the glory and the and the grace of God, which is probably a good template for our own prayers, right? A good template for our own prayers is to ask God boldly for the things that we want and we need, but only after affirming and, and worshiping God for who he is and what he has said and what he has done in our lives up until up until that point. So you acknowledge God and worship him. You confess your sin to God and ask him for forgiveness. You thank God for his forgiveness provision and his kindness, and then after you, kind of, after you kind of adore and confess and thank God, then you can ask God for the things that you, that you need, which is what he does, which is what Solomon does, starting in verse 22. It says, Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of the assembly of Israel. He spread out his hands toward heaven, and he said, O Lord, God of Israel, there is no one like you in heaven or on earth beneath, keeping your covenant, showing faithfulness to your servants who walk before you. You have kept your servant David with my father, you've declared him, you spoke with your mouth and with your hand, and you fulfilled it to this day. And now therefore, O Lord God, please keep for your servant David my father what you have promised him, saying, You shall not lack a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel, if only your sons pay close attention to their way, and walk before me as you have walked. Now therefore, O God of Israel, let your word be confirmed, which you have spoken to your servant David my father. So, God, you have made grand sweeping promises. God, you have faithfully kept all of the promises that you have made. And God, I pray that you would keep your promises, right? Prayer is kind of this weird tension, this twofold affirming what is true about God, celebrating what is true about God, trusting that God will be true, and praying that God will be true. I trust that God will be true, and I pray and I ask that you will be true to your to your words verse twenty seven behold uh, the, uh, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less can this house contain you that I have built and yet Have regard to the prayer of your servant. Listen to the cry and the prayer of your servant that we pray to you this day, that your eyes may be open night and day toward this house, the place that you have said. My name shall be there, that you will listen to the prayer of your servants that we offer toward this place. Verse 30. And listen to the plea of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place. And listen in heaven, your dwelling place. And when you hear, please forgive us. Solomon is praying at the outset, at the dedication of this temple. He's saying, this is going to be a place where we come to pray. We are praying now that you would hear our prayers into perpetuity when we gather here to pray together. And then in verses 31 and following, he outlines several specific examples of circumstances that the people of God may find themselves in when they might need to pray to God and cry out to God and how God might, how Solomon would like for God to answer them in those moments. Verse 31, If a man sins against his neighbor and is made to take an oath and comes and swears his oath before the altar in this house, then hear in heaven and act and judge your servants, condemning the guilty by bringing his conduct down on his own head and vindicating the righteous by rewarding him in accordance with his righteousness. So Solomon saying, if there's a dispute... If someone steals something, if there are two people that have a lawsuit against each other and they come here and we're trying to hear the case, please bring justice, right? God, you are the king. You are the one who's just. We need your help to execute justice in the world. We need you to make sure that guilty people don't go free. We need you to make sure that innocent people are not punished wrongly. So please help us to be a people of justice. Verse 33 When your people are defeated before the enemy because they have sinned against you, and they turn against they turn again to you and acknowledge your name and pray and plead for you in this house, hear us in heaven and forgive the sin of your people and bring them again to the land that you gave to your fathers. <coughs> so scenario one is if two people have a lawsuit, please help us to judge and govern justly and rightly and make sure that justice is done. Scenario number two is when we sin against you and turn away from you, and we invite the judgment of God on ourselves in the form of other nations uh, defeating us in battle, please listen to our cries for mercy and bring us home. Verse 35, another example of what would happen if we turn against you. When heaven is shut up and there is no rain because we have sinned against you, if we pray toward this place and acknowledge your name and turn from our sin, then uh, you afflict us. Please hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel teach them the good way in which they should walk and grant rain upon your land, which you have given to them as an inheritance. So if we sin against you and you, you know, turn off the the rain from heaven, we pray and ask for mercy. Please hear us. Please be compassionate. Please forgive us. There's kind of a recurring theme here. The recurring theme is if and when we sin against you and if and when we experience judgment of God because of our sin, if we turn to you, pray to you, cry out to you, ask you for mercy, Please be merciful to us. Verses 37 to 40. Same thing if there's a famine in the land, pestilence, blight, mildew, locusts, caterpillars. If the enemy besieges and finds them at their gates, whatever the plague or sickness is, whatever the prayer is, whatever the plea that's made, please hear from heaven from your dwelling place and forgive and act and render according to each whose heart you know according to all his ways, that we might fear you all the days and live in the land that you gave to our fathers. Verse 41, uh, verse 41 is, is kind of breaking with the recurring pattern. Instead of saying, if your people sin against you and invite judgment and ask for mercy, please be merciful to us. Verse 41, Solomon kind of uh, show, tips his hand and shows a heart for, a concern for all nations instead of just the nation of Israel. When a foreigner who is not of your people, Israel, comes from a far country for your name's sake... For they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand with an outstretched arm when he comes and prays toward this house here in heaven, your dwelling place, and do according to all which the foreigner calls you to, in order that all the peoples of all the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your people Israel, that they may know you and know that this house, know that this is the house that I have built is called by your name. So, So when... Pagans and non-Christians and Gentiles and people from other nations come here. When they pray, please don't be a God who only listens to the prayers of the people of Israel. Don't be a God who only listens to the prayers of people who look like me and, and act like me and are like me. But be a, be a God and answer the prayers of all people from all nations all over the, the world. Verse 44 if your people go out to battle against their enemy by whatever way you shall send them and they pray to the Lord against the, to, toward the city that you have chosen in the house that I have built for your name, then hear in heaven, hear their plea, maintain their, their cause. So help us to be victorious in battle, right? Help our, our men when they go out to fight, help them to come home to their, their wives and, and children, right? Be with us and give us grace and strength. Verse 46 and following, uh, if your people sin against you, For there is no one who does not sin, right? If we sin against you and you are angry with your people and you give them to an enemy and they're carried away into a captive land, far off or near... If then, if they turn their heart in the land to which they have been carried captive, if they repent and plead with you, and they say we have sinned and we have acted perversely and wickedly, if they repent with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their enemies who carried them captive, and they pray toward their land, which you gave to their fathers in the city that you have chosen, the house that I have built by your name, then God, verse 49, then. Here in heaven, your dwelling place, their prayer and their plea, maintain their cause, forgive them, forgive their transgressions that they have committed against you, grant them compassion in the sight of those who have carried them captive, that they might have compassion on them. Verse 52, Let your eyes be open to the plea of your servant, to the plea of your people, giving ear to them. Verse 53, For you separated them from among the peoples of earth to be your heritage, as you declared through Moses your servant, who brought our fathers out of Egypt, O Lord God. So Solomon is maybe speaking a little better than he knows here. Maybe he's being a little bit prophetic, but he says, if and when foreign nations come defeat us, carry us off into exile, you know, scatter us throughout all the nations and take all of our stuff. If we, if we find ourselves in that situation and we look to you and we pray to you and we ask you for mercy, please hear our prayer, hear our cry. Give us the gift of, of repentance and grant us compassion and bring us home. And in verse 54 and following, we see the benediction. Solomon finished the offering before the Lord. <coughs> he arose before the altar of the Lord and he knelt down with his hands outstretched toward heaven. And he stood and he blessed the assembly of the Israel with a loud voice, saying, verse 56. Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel, according to all that he has promised. Not one word of his failed, of all of his good promises, which he spoke by Moses his servant. The Lord our God be with us as he was with our fathers. May he not leave us or forsake us, that he may incline our hearts to him, to walk in all his ways and keep his commandments and his statutes and his rules, which he has commanded to our fathers. Let these words of mine with which I have pleaded before the Lord, be near to the Lord our God day and night. May he maintain the cause of his servant and the cause of his people Israel as each day requires that all the peoples of the earth may know the Lord is God, that there is no other. Let your heart therefore be wholly true to the Lord our God, walking in his statutes, keeping his commandments as at this day. So the benediction... The blessing for the road, for the people of Israel, Solomon saying, all right, we're about to have a big party and then we're going to send you guys all home. But the the blessing for the road is may God be with us. May God keep us faithful to him. May God incline our hearts toward him and toward obedience so that we can experience the blessing and the fellowship and the presence of God in our lives. Verse 62, Then the king and all Israel with him offered a sacrifice before the Lord. The following verses explains there's thousands and thousands of animals that they are uh, sacrificing. Verse 66, on the eighth day, he sent the people away and they blessed the king. And they went to their homes joyful and glad of heart for all the goodness that the Lord had shown to David, his servant, and to Israel, his people. So the temple has been built. The palace has been built, the temple's been dedicated, they've prayed over it, they've had a big celebration, they all go home happy and, and full. God's dwelling place among his people has been established. Right From this point forward, the people of God have a place to gather, a permanent place to gather and worship. This is a, a great day in Israel, this is a historic day for them. This is a, a literally a turning point, as it were, in uh, human history. is the, the building of the temple, a dwelling place for God among the, the people of God. And to understand it, to, to understand the significance of the temple and why this moment was so significant for the people of Israel, you kind of have to do what, what we knew in the last few days, uh, a, a biblical theology of the temple. We looked at this Uh, both when we looked at the Ascension text in in the Gospel of Luke and more recently. But if we look at the theme of the temple as it runs through Scripture, we kind of see how central the temple is and why the building of the temple was so important. So it starts in Genesis 1. Genesis 1, God creates the world, light out of darkness, order out of chaos. In Genesis 2, God creates the Garden of Eden, a specific spot uh, in uh, where God is going to dwell. So I've created the entire world, but I've created a special area, a special spot where I'm going to dwell with my my people. It's a dedicated space. It's full of trees and flowers and angels, and it's beautiful and perfect and, and glorious. And God tasks humanity in Genesis 2 with working and keeping the garden. Right? God says... I've spent six days creating. Now I'm going to rest and I'm going to rule over my creation. And I want you to rest with me and rule with me in the cosmic temple that I have created. And God tasks humanity with being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth and subduing it. So the picture is God's created the entire world, but God has then created the, the Garden of Eden. And He says, I want you to, we're here. We're in the Garden of Eden, we're dwelling together, humanity's together, but I want you to, to multiply and fill the earth and subdue. So the out there, beyond the borders of the Garden of Eden, is chaos, but in here, in the Garden of Eden, is God's glory and, and God's presence. And I want you, on my behalf, to take the glory and presence of God and expand it out. I want you to bring order out of chaos in all the, the world. Expand the borders of the garden of the cosmic temple to cover the entire earth that's humanity's job in Genesis 2 in Genesis 3 they don't do that job right? humanity says instead of ruling with God and expanding the borders of the cosmic garden temple so that God's presence and rule goes over all the earth, instead of doing that we want to rule in place of God, we want to rule instead of God on our own and God kicks them out of the garden. And so humanity has essentially been removed from the, the cosmic garden temple. Humanity has been removed from the presence of God. And they spend the rest of the Old Testament longing for and getting glimpses of and hoping for and wanting some semblance of the presence of God. We've been kicked out of the temple and we want to make our way back into the temple so that we can experience the glory of God and the presence of God. And the, the temple... And the tabernacle before it are kind of symbols of that. The tabernacle we see in the book of Exodus as Israel is wandering through the wilderness. It's this makeshift, portable, temporary temple. Uh, but it's, it's kind of made of, it's a tent. And it's made of all these fine linens. And embroidered on them are all of these garden imagery, uh, Like cherubim, flowers, things like, things like that. So God is kind of saying at the tabernacle, this is reminiscent of the Garden of Eden that I originally created for you, that you are no longer in then the temple it's a permanent structure that is the same thing: garden imagery, trees, flowers, angels. God is saying, this temple is hearkening back to it 's reminiscent of my original, perfect, glorious, created intention for humanity, which is to be with me, live with me, rule with me, rule on my behalf, and see the glory of God you know brought forth to the ends of the of the earth. So for the entire Old Testament, the the, the presence of God, the glory of God that was originally in the garden is kind of residing in the tabernacle and later in the temple. And then in the new covenant, Jesus comes and he says, The presence of God and the rule of God are coming into the world in a new way. They're not going to be in the world in the same way that they were with the tabernacle and the temple in a building. They're now here in a person. John chapter 1 says that Jesus was the Word who became flesh and tabernacled among us. So, what the tabernacle was intending to do, the presence of God, uh, the, the rule of God here on earth, now Jesus is doing that instead of the tabernacle. In John chapter 2, Jesus refers to the temple, but he says, the temple is my body. He says, you know, if you destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three days. And they're like, that's insane. No one can raise this temple in, or no one can, can, yeah, erect this temple in three days. And Jesus says, well, what John kind of parenthetically says is he's not talking about the physical structure of the temple. He's talking about himself. Jesus is saying, I am the temple, the, the purpose for which the temple was built to be the presence of God among the people of God so that the people of God can enjoy God. That's what I came to to do. God and man can dwell together uh, in the person and work of, of Jesus, right? Jesus came to realize and actualize God's perfect vision for the world, to realize and actualize what the temple was merely symbolizing. And then, after Jesus dies on the cross and he's resurrected and he ascends to heaven, the temple is no longer Jesus, who is now back in heaven at the right hand of the Father. Now the temple becomes the the people of God, the church of God, right? In whom God dwells through his Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? Ephesians chapter 2, it says that you are members of... The household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Christ Jesus himself is the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple of the Lord in whom you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Holy Spirit. So the same thing that the Garden of Eden was originally meant to be, this this garden temple, the church has a similar task a similar role in the world be the the place where god's presence dwells and the same task that god gave humanity in the garden when he says uh you know go multiply fill the earth a similar task is given to the church when god says go and make disciples of all nations and baptize them and teach them to observe all that i have commanded you so expand the borders fill the earth with the glory of god the gospel of god see the the see the glory of God, go to the ends of the earth and see people respond uh, to it. There's a garden where God dwelled, that's the original temple. There's the tabernacle and there's the actual temple where God dwelled. There's Jesus, the true temple, who is God himself come to dwell uh, among us. Then there's the church where God dwells through his Holy Spirit. And then finally, there's eternity. There's the, the new heavens and the new earth when, when all of creation will be recreated and renewed and restored back to how God originally intended for them to be, uh, you know, drenched with the unmediated glory of God. What God originally intended for the garden to be is what would eventually become the, the holy of holies in the tabernacle and the most holy place in the temple and then Jesus Christ himself and the church and then, and then eventually in heaven, all of heaven will be like the the inner room of the temple. All of heaven will be like the, the garden of Eden, this cosmic temple where God's unmediated presence and glory dwells with humanity. Revelation 21, behold the dwelling place of God is with man, Revelation 22, and there will be no more night, there will be no more light or lamp or sun because God will be their light and they will reign with him forever and ever. The theme of the temple kind of runs all through the Bible start to finish. It's at the very center of the storyline of the Bible because the temple uh, is the, the story of, it's pointing to God's redemption of his people through Christ. And the temple is also where sacrifices are offered. The temple is where sin is atoned for. The, ten, the, the temple is where God's wrath is satisfied. For all of the Old Testament, the people of God would gather at the temple. They would, they would, you know, stand and watch as symbolically the priest would would transfer the sins of humanity onto the sins of this innocent animal. And then that animal would be slaughtered. And then the animal's blood would be sprinkled inside the temple. And then the animal would be, would be uh, you know, put on the, the altar, the burnt offering uh, on the altar outside. All of that happened at the the temple, sacrifice, substitutionary atonement, satisfaction right for sin, satisfaction of wrath, and when Jesus came, everything that was done in the temple was fulfilled in him. Jesus was the true and better new covenant sacrifice that all of those uh, old covenant sacrifices were pointing to and would eventually give way to. So just like uh, sin was transferred to an innocent lamb, Jesus was the lamb who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus was slaughtered as an innocent sacrifice so that our sins could be forgiven and so that God's wrath could be satisfied. So Jesus is the true temple where the presence of God dwells with his people and Jesus is the true sacrifice that took place at the temple. And so when we read about the temple... When we read about the construction of the temple, we read about the installation of the the sacrifices, when we read about God's presence dwelling with humanity, we're not just reading about, we're not reading a story about a building that was built 3,000 years ago, right? We're, We're reading an invitation from God himself for us to avail ourselves of what the temple Symbolized in what the temple was, right? Jesus is inviting us to come into his presence through the sacrifice that he made for us. He's inviting us to enjoy his presence and walk with him and rest with him and and rule with him. Jesus is inviting us to turn from our sin and to trust in his death and his resurrection so that our sins can be forgiven, so that we can be reconciled to God, so that we can enjoy the presence of God and live with him forever and ever. When we read about the temple, we're reading about God making a way for his people to be forgiven so that they can live with him and experience his presence. The person and work of Jesus is the way by which God has Jesus is the way that God has made for us to experience forgiveness of sin and to enjoy his presence. And so the temple is nothing more than that. It's an invitation for us to gather as a people, to turn from our sin, to trust in Jesus, and to experience afresh his grace that he offers freely to us. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have come here among us. You have made your dwelling among us. Lord, we thank you that we can enjoy the glorious presence of God through the gospel of Jesus. We thank you that we can gather together and worship together and rejoice in the good news of the gospel. We, we thank you, Lord, for Jesus, the true temple of the true sacrifice who accomplished salvation for us and who offers it to us freely to be received by faith. We thank you and we trust you and it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.